Good morning. I'm going to start with uh, three off-the-cuff remarks, and then I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to preach. First off-the-cuff remark, this is the fourth time I will have preached here, and each time that I've come, I've deliberately come early to go to Starbucks, to walk down the street to the social housing in the community, to walk around the building. All those three things connect me with the culture and with the challenge and with the facilities that can meet the challenge. I think, I've thought for two or three years, Ebenezer has tremendous opportunity and tremendous um, potential. And I've felt that, and so I'm feeling it now, so I said it. The second off-the-cuff remark probably won't go down as nicely. Despite some wonderful exceptions, <clears throat> despite some wonderful exceptions, the Church of Christ in North America today is in deep trouble. And if you don't know that, you're naive. I knew that wouldn't be a nice part. The third off-the-cup remark seems to contradict that. I believe in and am totally committed to the local church. And if it's naive to think the church is not in trouble, I think it's to step out of the will of God to step out of the local church. Let me pray. Break thou the bread of life, dear Lord, to me as you did break the loaves beside the sea. Beyond the sacred page we seek thee, Lord. Our spirits, they long for thee, for you are the living word. Amen. In the last 20 years, when there's been so much writing and talk about the renewal of the church, I must have read not less than 200 books. On average, that's 10 a year, so it's more than that. But I've read them. And the one that still stands out for me is Howard Snyder's Community of the King. It has influenced me greatly. But the passage of scripture that was read to us this morning, and some of which may come on the screen or I'll read it to you, Ephesians chapter 4, 1 to 16, is the passage that grips me most about where the church needs to go. It's not dramatic with some super program. It's just what the Bible says the church ought to be. And unfortunately often is not. I don't like dropping names, I said to the Queen the other day. No, no, I didn't. Um, <laughs> when I first went to the Milmead Church of which John spoke, I thought I should talk to people who know England better than I, even though I was born and raised there. So I went and had lunch with John Stott. Now to most of you, who's he? But some of you, you're going to be impressed that I had lunch with John Stott. And I learned so much. I sat at his feet, even though I also sat at the table and had lunch with him. And I said, John, what do you do in this day and age when you come to a church new like I've come? He said, you teach them the book of Ephesians, particularly chapter 4. 
So again you can see where I'm coming from. And I speak this morning not only to John and to Kirsten, but to the elders and other leaders of the church, and to all of you, I speak to you all. Occasionally I'll say things to which this morning you'll say, oh, that's great, amen. And others you'll go, oh, what do you say that for? At my induction service to Winnipeg, Trinity Baptist Church, they went through all the stuff and then they had a meal downstairs afterwards instead of a barbecue outside. But I want you to know what I said on that particular occasion that was so important and it's so related to what I'm saying this morning. Jack Farr, the area minister, wasn't Bob Cron, it was Jack Farr. We were all gathered downstairs and it was time to say grace and he said, and now Bob will say grace. To which I said, confronted by civic authorities, confronted by the church members, confronted by denominational leaders, other churches, whatever, a crowd. I said, oh no he won't. Deathly silence. I thought, we've already had sermons and inductions, I better keep this brief. I said, I did not come here to be a chaplain of your religious occasions. If we are going to proceed the way I believe we should, somebody else should say grace. And they did, and we ate, and the food was fine, and nobody died, so I just wanted you to know that that was at the induction service. Let's come to the scripture, Ephesians chapter 4. Oh, we are getting on the screen. The first two verses I call attitudes. This is what John Stott wanted to teach about the nature of the church. This is what I've experienced. This is what I believe the Bible says. It starts with attitudes. As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to have a life worthy of the calling you have received. A parallel passage, a little longer, is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. I ask you to think about one another and to consider others more important than yourself and don't be conceited and all of that stuff in Philippians 2. Now this is going to be my briefest point almost. Leslie Newbigin says, the only hermeneutic explanation of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live it and you cannot believe it and live it unless you hear Paul say I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received some dynamic in the church that goes beyond the building that goes beyond the history that goes beyond the capabilities of the leaders, that goes beyond whatever you think you have going for you in music or technology or whatever. There's something deeper and Newbegin catches it. It's that something you can't describe, let me tell you. Yesterday afternoon, I didn't plan on doing research, but Brenda and I met up with a friend, psychiatrist and his wife, I need to stay close to people like that. Um, <laughs> beautiful, beautiful person who's had some wonderful experiences in a particular church. I'll just leave it at that. And so I said to him, 
I'm not going to give away names. Uh, the males will be Sam and the females will be Mary. That's how I tell my stories. So I said, Sam, this church you go to, it's in the States and he goes down maybe two or three times a year because it's meant so much to him. What makes it tick? And he told me what I've had told to me every time I've asked the question about what makes vital churches tick? And I never got the answer, the preacher. I never got the answer, we have got such super programs for kids. I never got any other answer but what I've just read to you. The only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live it. In verse 3 we come to the second point, one I've titled, Action. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It's more of the same thing, but it's a little more deliberative here. Keep the unity. It doesn't say keep uniformity. You don't all have to think alike. That would, that would be awful. Imagine being in a marriage in which you both thought alike all the time. It would be nice if Brenda agreed with me more than she does, but I certainly don't want uniformity. Most divisions in a church are not theological. Most of them are emotional and relational. You've heard the old ditty, to live above with saints I love. I know that that will be glory. But to live below with the ones I know, that's a different story. <laughs> I'll tell you a story to move off onto the next point. I'm moving along, almost into point three. When I retired, whatever that meant, some 15 years ago, I then began doing church consultancies and, and interim pastorates and whatever. I did a particular one in which they'd had all kinds of conflict and won't go through all that story. So when I'd been with them for a few months, I, I generally would go for a year and, um, and have fun. Because if they didn't like it, they could just tell me to go home and that was fine. But most of them liked it and I had fun too. But there was this particular man, I'm going to call him Sam, again. Um, Sam was, everybody feared him. He was at that time about 80, but for the last 30 or 40 years he had terrorized the church. You know, church meetings, you'd always get up and you'd have to quote line 17.A of the Constitution before you could get anything done and that kind of stuff. And it was just aggro all the time. And the congregation wanted to be more warm-hearted than that. So one day I took Sam to lunch. It's a very true story. Uh, he was really a nice guy. And he'd done good things in the community and was liked in the community. Somehow though, when he got in those church meetings or he got discussing things or if the pastor wore a blue tie instead of a red tie, he just took umbrage all the time. I said, Sam, well, we talked. I, I won't go through any of the story. I said, but I've got, I'm leaving in a few weeks now. I've got some recommendation for you that can really help this church in a remarkable way. You could be the beginning of a whole new life for this church. He said, watch that. I said, I would like you 
to buy a little jar of honey. Okay? And a little spoon to go with it. And I want you to take that jar of honey and that little spoon and to every church meeting you go, take it with you. And when you feel this urge to be a pain in the neck or whatever else you've been for these last 20 or 30 years, I want you to open up the jar of honey, take a spoonful of it, and in plain Liverpool language, stick it in your gob. He looked at me. But somehow he had a little tear in his eye. And he said, I will. About five weeks later, it was time for me to go and say goodbye. And they had a little dinner and all said nice things about me, which were all sweet. People gave little testimonies. And then Sam, I almost said his name then, but Sam stood up. And he had a jar of honey in his hand. He had a spoon. And he didn't have little tears. This time, the tears were big. He said, I want to apologize to this church. Because, you can imagine all the stuff you need to apologize. And he dipped the spoon into the honey. And he took a mouthful of it. And he said, I'll keep doing that till I can do it no more. Keep the unity. You don't all have to be the same. But please behave nicely. Now we go a little deeper theologically, if you like. We come to verses 4 through 6, and I've used the title, Acclamation. For it says, there is one body, one spirit, just as we're called to one hope. When you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Oh, whole series of sermons on that one. But let me tell you probably what you know, is that the epistles were written primarily, if not almost exclusively, to local churches, whether they were in Ephesus or Philippi or wherever. And what we've tended to do with this historically is make this a big verse about the unity of the church. I'm all for that. I'm not arguing that. But this is really not a statement about or for the worldwide church. It's a statement for local believers to realize the basis of their life together. If you understand the depth of that passage, then you begin to understand, what are we doing sitting here in the pews this morning? This is why. This is about communal life. This is about being a church of community. Ah, let me risk it. This is about Gemeinschaft and not Gesellschaft. I thought some Germans might recognize that word. But I have an even better word than community. Because community to lots of people is fellowship. That feels good and we're all cozy in a lovely club. Community is more than that. Here in the New Testament, community is a sociological term. Communitas. So think of community, that's good. But let's go deeper. Communitas. How do I describe that? It's September, the kids have all come back, or they come into the new high school, or whatever. And soon, some of them sign up for the drama club. And soon, the drama club decides they're going to put on West Side Story. And they'll show it next May, and, you know, all the excitement of that, and people will come. But the work, the tension, the struggle, the tears, 
that go on from September through to May are incredible. But eventually May comes, they put on the sound of music. Not the sound of music, West Side Story. And then everybody cheers and it's wonderful, it's a great accomplishment. And then three weeks later, they all get together for a dinner to congratulate themselves and to share testimony, if you want to use a Christian term, about what the year's been like. And what you hear them say is, we didn't know each other before we started out on this project. And during the project, we could have banged each other on the head. And, and some of us wanted to quit. And some of us thought the director should have been fired long ago. Or whatever it was, we were into all of this. But as we got there, and we were so proud when we put on the play and blessed the community because of it. And now we really love one another. That's communitas because, hear me carefully and deliberately, community in a local church has less to do with fellowship teas and strawberry socials in June or feeling good in a small group. And it has far more to do with mission. Communitas is the fellowship and the community that's created when you're working your head off on a common vision. And I walk around this neighborhood and I sit in Starbucks and I look at this magnificent building and I go, Communitas will be a deliberate effort for people to try to live in this community, to try to reach this community, to try in every way possible to share the gospel just because it's no longer a German area, just longer, it's no longer a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant area, just because it's Canada 2017, creates an opportunity for us to be so involved that when we are involved and when we do it, you will know a love for one another and a passion for Jesus Christ like you've never known it before. 7 to 11 abilities. In verse 7 to 11, I won't read all of that convoluted stuff, it's good, but it, there isn't much time left. Basically it says, God has given gifts to his church. We have become gifted. The word charisma. So I've got the word abilities, because it is the design of God's church to be gift-based. I mentioned Howard Snyder's book. It still has pride of place uh, on my shelf at home. Snyder says, and this is where I got into Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft, the church is a charismatic organism, not an institution. It does not operate like City Hall. It does not operate like a business. It operates through gifted people being empowered to share, to live out, to enjoy, to bless, to use the gifts that they have. And that's the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. And in this passage, if you into Greek and Aramaic and all the rest of it, it says that it is to the laos that gifts have been given. The church knows about laity. The church knows so, the Bible knows so, so little, if anything, about clergy. Now, I believe in leadership. 
absolutely believe in paid leadership. I absolutely believe that leadership should be trained. I have a sociology degree and I have three theological degrees. So I got the union card, I got everything. But none of that makes me an automatic leader. None at all. What would make me and anybody else a leader of the laos, being one myself, is just the ability to share and empower others. So that's what's being said here. Let me go back to John Stott. This time I wasn't having lunch with him, I just read his book. The last book he ever wrote before he died. It's about the church. And he says, what often annoys him when he goes into a church is he sees this title. And John Stott said that. You can imagine me saying it. Yes, I'd say it. But to John Stott to say it. An Anglican. He said, I see on the bulletin the minister, the Reverend Smith or whoever. How dare people say that? That's not biblical. No church has just one minister or one pastor. It's full of ministers. It's full of pastors. Now there's a leader who's been trained and should be. I'm all for it. You heard me say that. Got the union cards. Got the degrees. Okay. Once at a pastor's conference to which I used to speak at a lot. Somebody said, okay Bob, tell me. What do you see as the role of the pastor? A term that I don't like, but doesn't matter. I'm only here today, you probably won't ask me again, so that's fine, here goes. I said, the role of the pastor, see I did use the term, is to train people to do all the ministries they think they're paying him to do, or her to do. I'll say that again, because I'm being very biblical, and if you don't agree with me, you're being very traditional. The role of the pastor according to Ephesians chapter 4 is to train people to do the ministry that they think they hired him to do for them. Ain't so. We'll see more of that in a minute. I find as I look at time, I'm going to slip through some stuff and get to an end a little quicker because I want to tell a wonderful story at the end about the Milne Church of which John spoke. I was back at my son Cameron's church. Cameron is one of the big boys at the NAB along with Bob Cron and a few others. Um, so I taught Cameron anything I know and then he taught me everything he knows in the last 20 years I've seen all the difference so I love his church, I love what he does etc. But for a little while like I went to John and worked with John, um, I worked with Cameron and established an intern program, blah 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 one of the great joys for me was to sit down with people and teach them to do ministries that everybody used to think was only for the reverend and when I went back there the other day, I met Mary. That's not her name. I never use people's first names. I just invent another name. Mary now must be 40, maybe mid-30s. 
has two lovely children. She's as sweet as ever, bright as ever. But I have very precious memories of Mary. Because I remember when we would go to Starbucks together. And we would spread out the Bible and some books and commentaries and paper and talk for hours about Psalm 1 or whatever it was she was going to preach on in a few weeks. And I'd worked with her. And then, just before she was about to preach, we'd go back to Starbucks. Oh, Tim Hortons, uh, I'm not biased. And we'd do the same thing. How's it coming? Uh, yeah. yeah. Then she would preach. And then, maybe we'd go to McDonald's, although that doesn't have any food, so whatever. Um, we would go somewhere and do the same thing. All over. But this time it's, hey, that really went well. I've noticed the last couple of times you've preached, you've been able to, and you've been able to project your voice. Cut a long story short, she and many others were a joy to me. As much as preaching, which is a joy, training others to preach, and to teach, and to witness, and to lay hands on for healing, and, 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 that's the role of the minister. Having said all of that, I'm going to leave the rest out and come to verses 12 through 16, because I've really told you what the verses said in between. If we come to verses 12 to 16, it says, verse 11 actually, you've got apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, and what is their aim? Why are they there for? Well, I just told you, it was to teach them how to minister. But then, in the end, what is their aim? So that the body of Christ may be built up, so they all come to unity in the faith, so they all know how to defend their faith. In other words, the aim of all the stuff I've been talking about that faces John and Kirsten and the elders and deacons and whatever names you have here is to help believers in this church become spiritually alive, become able to live in this culture with an apologetic that they know to make this body healthy. When I'm sick, it's because one part of my body isn't working. The reason the church is sick is that parts of its body don't work properly. And this is your new opportunity to find leadership in which, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, the leadership will find its joy and its strength in stirring up all the gifts in you. During my 50 years of ministry, I've had people say to me, you're good at this, 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 and this, and you're no good at this, 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 and this. I think the best compliment they ever gave me. Well, my mother-in-law gave me one, which I thought was really great. I'll tell you that in a minute. But the greatest compliment I ever received, and one I'm the most proud of, Bob, you always empower people. And that's what I want to be known for. My mother-in-law used to compliment me without realizing she said, Oh, you're terrible. You're not really a pastor. You don't speak like a pastor. You don't look dressed like a pastor. And you don't look like a pastor. I would say, Thank you, Mom. That's so kind of you to say all those nice things. 
What is a healthy church? A healthy church is people who know their faith. A healthy church, which is the aim of the leaders, is to know how to live that faith before a watching world. A healthy church is a church that not only knows how, but wants to dialogue with the world around it. Here's my closing story. John and Kristen will identify with it. I'll try to make it alive for you. In my ministry at Milmead Church, all this stuff I would have said and done, the church was like my friend Sam. Well, you can't really put your finger on it, but it's alive and God's doing marvelous things there. There were a group of people who met every Friday morning to pray. I didn't go to it, I went to other things, but one particular Friday morning, they got a word from God, and they were discerning people, they weren't flaky people. That as many people who were to be baptized on Sunday night, however many the number was, the same number would come to Christ that night. I knew nothing about that. I only knew that I was going to preach. I hadn't preached in the morning for a long time, and so I was doing a little mini-series at night. We were into Acts 16. You know the story of the Philippian jailer, and he was converted and his family was baptized. We'll keep it that brief. So I had the best sermon the world's ever heard all ready to preach on that one. The baptisms took place. I was sitting down with my wife, and uh, we were watching the baptisms go on. Uh, at Milmead Church, the baptisms would have been done by the elders, uh, by the home group leaders. Uh, the elders would be in charge, but the home group leaders would be in the water with them and hearing the testimony of the people. And so it went on, and the stories were wonderful, they were long, we're now into an hour and a half. It's my turn to preach. And I knew I wasn't going to preach. I stood up and I said, we have had so many wonderful sermons in these baptisms tonight. I'm just going to read the passage of scripture, which I did. I read Acts uh, chapter 16. As a, and I said, but I just sense God would have me invite anyone who doesn't know Christ to come forward. Guess how many people came forward? Eight people. And so, enthused by that, I then said, and if other people want ministry, why don't you stand where you are? And people stood. Now, because of all I've been saying to you, I didn't have to rush down and handle those who were coming to faith. We had people who'd been trained for that. I didn't have to go deal with those who wanted ministry in some kind. We'd had people trained for that. That's going on, and I go, okay, we'll sing the closing hymn, and it's over. And what happened in baptismal services at Millmead when it was over was those who had been baptized would go into separate rooms with their elders and house group leaders and with their families. The families used to come. It was a big deal whether the families were believers or not. They'd all come. And so they'd go into a room and be prayed for and blessed. Whatever. Wonderful stuff. So here are people praying in the sanctuary. Here are people counseling others to come to Christ. And I go, well, I'll go check on the rooms. Door opened. John, one of the elders. Different John, another elder. Yes, Bob, can we help? 
I said, can I help? No, we're doing fine. And I went down a number of doors uh, asking, could I, the senior pastor, the Reverend Dr. Waxborough, could I? And they, no, don't need you. Praise God, that was all my own fault. And so I said to Brenda, I had a long day and I was tired. Let's go home, have some tea and crumpets. I just looked around and sanctuaries of buzz. I knew people were in the room and I go, praise God. I got home and Brenda said to me, what do you say praise God for? I said, because all the things I believe about the church are happening back there tonight. It's happening without me. And to some degree, it's happening because of me. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your church. I believe it is in a mess and needs a radical change. I don't know any other way it will change outside of a local church discovering what you wanted to do in the light of the Bible. To this end, I pray that John, as he works with the leaders, and the leaders as they work with one another, will take to heart the things that I've said. Bless them all in the name of Jesus. Amen.